welcome to the Damon Parker Podcast. On today's episode, you will hear part four of a series of teachings on how I came to an affirming view of same-sex relationships. In this lesson, we talk about options for moving forward, and I make a plea for a gracious, affirming view. As always, I hope you are moved, and thanks for listening. Tonight, we're going to conclude uh, the series that I've been uh, presenting on how I came to an affirming view and what that means, how I kind of journeyed there. Uh, And tonight, we're going to take the last turn in that journey. So we're going to begin with a brief review. Um, If you'll remember, at the very beginning of this, I talked about how we are going to be hitting kind of the high points. In other words, we're talking about a 30-year journey. You can't possibly hit everything. As a matter of fact, I can't remember everything. Some of the biggest, most important stuff I've probably forgotten that led me to the place where I am. And so we've only been able to hit a, a few things, but hit some high points. And so the first week we talked about my personal view of Scripture and how that has evolved over time. The next week we talked about what the Bible has to say about sex and sexuality, and we looked at kind of the variety of things it has to say and and the culture in which those things were said. Last week, we began with Romans 1 and talked about what do we see when we look out the window. If we look at the natural world, if we look at science, if we look at nature, if we look at reason, if we look at logic, if we, if we look at psychology, if we look at even just interpersonal relationships and what we learn by talking to people and how that influences what we believe, what we think is moral and what we think is right. And we talked about all those things and at the end of last week I kind of summarized that this has led me to a particular place. And so tonight... We're going to continue that by talking about where this journey could lead, where it may be going. And to do that, I want to say something real quick. I want to say, first of all, that what I am talking about is about my journey and it is about the church. And by the church, I don't mean just the people in this room. I mean the church, the global phenomenon, uh, the church. I am not talking about what someone should do politically or that sort of thing. I have some very definitive views on that, but that's not what this is concerned with. I'm talking about my personal journey of faith and then what I think that could mean for the church. And tonight, as I talk about where this journey is heading, I'm going to make an assumption, and I want to lay that assumption out to you to begin with. And that assumption is this, that the stuff I'm going to say tonight only matters if someone is somewhere along this journey. In other words, if someone is questioning, if someone is rethinking kind of old paths, if someone is 
willing to once again look at God and Scripture and relationships in a new light, if someone is not at that place, that's okay. One of the things I've learned through doing ministry for 25 years is this. You cannot get somebody to ask questions they're not ready to ask. You just can't. And so you shouldn't try. And so the things I'm going to say tonight, assume though that someone is at least questioning. They are at least questioning. They're at least willing to rethink. And so, I want to begin in light of that with some ways, just a few ways, this will be brief and then we'll move into our main topic, a few ways that if you are questioning, some ways you can keep growing or keep questioning, keep learning. And there are three that I highly recommend, and I recommend you do all three. The first is this, and it's probably the least important. But I would recommend reading some good stuff on this. And there's lots of good stuff being produced right now. Um, I'm more than willing to share some of the books I have. Um, I'm willing, more than, there's people here who've, who've read in a great deal about this topic. Um, if you want to start with kind of a, a very basic place that's pretty prominent among churches right now, you can read Matthew Vine's work. And it's a, it's a wonderful book by a Harvard graduate who is a Christian and who happens to be gay. And it's a beautiful work and it's a great place to kind of begin. But there's lots of other uh, books. And I encourage you to do that, to do some seeking, some questioning on your own uh, through reading if you can. But then the second area, which I think is more important, which would be to attend an event. It might be something as simple as going across town and visiting the Metropolitan Community Church, which has been around here something like 25 years or so. But a great place to start would be to visit there and meet people who are there. Go to an ally training. Even if you're like, I'm not even sure I'm ready to be an ally. That's okay. Go, so you learn, so you hear from people, so you hear their stories, so you hear what's being talked about. Um, If there's an event in town, and these are beginning to surface more, where uh, people are going to be talking about LGBTQ issues in our community, I encourage you to go to that and just listen. Um, A few months ago, some of you know, uh, I'm involved with a group called Abilene Allies. And a few months ago, at our very first meeting, we had all these people show up, strangers to me mostly. But one of my proudest moments of my life was the fact that my cousin came from Weatherford to be at the meeting. And he's not where I'm at on this. But he said, I'm here to sit and learn. And there's something beautiful about that. Being willing to open yourself up to hearing from other people and questioning is a beautiful thing. And here, so which leads me to the last one, and this is the most important one. I heard somebody say one time that the only way to truly be changed is to have an encounter with another human being. It's the only way to truly be changed. And so I encourage you to get out and find people whether they are straight or gay or transgender or whatever, 
who maybe think differently than you do on this topic and sit down and have coffee with them or go take them to lunch. Spend some time in their home. Just get to know them and listen and see what that does. And so if you're a part of the many people I know who are questioning or growing or trying to learn about this, I recommend those things. But for our purposes, if you are even close to some of that stuff, if you're even thinking, yeah, I'd be willing to read a book, I'd go to a meeting or whatever, then what I want to talk about tonight is this. How do we think about what we've talked about the last several weeks in terms of community of faith? If other people were on this same journey I I was on, what could we do? How could we think about it? And I'm going to present to you tonight several different options. Now, these aren't options like, um, I I think I'll have the cheeseburger tonight. Next time I come here, I'll have the taco. By the way, any place that serves cheeseburgers and tacos, you should avoid. Um, But these are more like, hey, here is one way to think about this that might fit where you are right now. And then we're going to present another one. You might say, oh, that's a different way to think about it. And maybe that's more where I am or that could stretch where I am. And I'm going to talk about these, uh, these different options. And so the first option I want to talk to you about tonight is that one way to think about these things going forward might be to focus on fruit. The New Testament is especially concerned with fruit. It talks about fruit a lot. Jesus really liked to use stories about farmers and growing things. That's very much what most people could understand, and so that's often what he talked about. He, his descriptor often of Israel was that Israel was a vineyard in which they were all kind of living and working. And Jesus talks a lot about fruit. Paul picks up on this. One of Paul's most famous passages for us is when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. So there's this idea in the New Testament that you see over and over again, which is this. Fruit is what matters, right? If you're a farmer or uh, someone who plants a vineyard, or you're trying to grow an orchard of trees, what you're ultimately after is fruit. You can have the best-looking, wonderful, beautiful apple trees in the world, but if you're a farmer and they never produce apples, then who cares? You've wasted time and energy and money, and you don't have anything to show for it. And so Jesus is very concerned about fruit. What we're after is fruit. What's the, we're after what this produces, But interestingly, while we're after fruit, fruit can't be the focus. Because fruit comes for a very particular reason. Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. In other words, fruit is a product. It's an outcome. You have a good tree in good soil with good weather, you get good fruit. You got a tree that's sickly and not, it wasn't planted well or it's not taken care of. This tree, although it's still a fruit tree, 
will not produce the fruit you want. And so, while fruit is what we are after as Christians, the emphasis has to be on the tree. In other words, what produces this fruit? And so, if we're thinking about fruit as an option, a way to think about things going forward, I think there's two things we can think about. One is that maybe it is time for us to look at the fruit of people who are LGBTQ identifying and are Christian. In other words, you know a tree by its fruit. So this person, these people, are they producing fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that are produced from a healthy spiritual tree. And so, one of the things we could perhaps start thinking about is, you know, instead of just thinking about this person as gay or as lesbian and, and using that as a category, I can start saying, wait a minute, this person is so patient and loving towards me. That is some fruit that makes sense to me. That tells me something about the tree that is producing it. Now that's one side of this. But I would actually encourage us not to spend a ton of time there. I would rather us spend some other some time on the flip side of this, which is this. What kind of fruit is our thinking and theology about this issue producing. In other words, the typical kind of way we have approached this issue has often been, I believe, unhealthy and has produced bad fruit. The suicide rate of LGBTQ teens is something like eight times higher than a typical suicide rate for teenagers. And there is some evidence that it's even higher among those who identify as Christian or conservative Christian. Sadly, many gay teens, lesbian teens, are kicked out of their home because of their sexual orientation. You find a greater percentage on the street of homeless or runaway kids who identify this way than should be typical because they don't fit at home. And many of us know people who have been basically disowned by their family, by their Christian family. And I don't talk about their church, although sometimes they've been kicked out of church but by their family because of their sexual orientation. And so my question would be, is our theology producing good fruit? Is the way we have typically thought about people working, is it producing love and generosity and graciousness and patience, or is it producing hurt and fear and pain and suffering? And so, maybe if you're at that place of kind of questioning, maybe a place to start would be this. What kind of fruit is my thinking about this producing? 
But let's talk about a second way. In the second way, I want to talk about meat. I love meat. I wish I didn't so much. Meat and Nutty Bars. I could live off the two. Do you still have those Nutty Bars? Oh, you had some earlier and I've just been, I mean, I've, I've been coveting I mean, just the whole time. But let's talk about meat for a minute. In two different places in the New Testament, meat becomes a big concern. One is in Corinthians and one is in Romans. And the concern is about what is right for a Christian to do. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about eating a meat sacrificed to idols. Is it wrong to eat that meat that's been sacrificed to a, a, a pagan idol for a Christian? And some of the Christians were saying, well, of course it's not. We know that idol's nothing. We have the real God. Well, eat the meat. And other Christians say, wait a minute. Then you're dabbling in idolatry, and that's not good. And that's, that goes against what God wants. And so you have people trying to figure that out. And you have that also in Romans. But in Romans, Paul even opens it up wider. To not just talk about meat sacrificed to idols, but the many things that we do that kind of, we, we, we think about it and think, is this right? Is it wrong? I don't know. I see some Christians doing this and some not. And how am I supposed to think about this? And so I'm going to read a little bit from Romans. Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. See, vegetarians are weak. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? This path, this idea uh, that we have here in Romans is really comes down to an idea about judgment. How do we judge things? We usually think of judgment as like a bad word, you know, like don't judge me or oh, he's so judgmental. But we all make judgments all the time, right? Like we look at the stop sign and how fast we're going and we make a judgment about when we should start applying the brakes, right? And sometimes we make a good judgment there, and sometimes we make a bad judgment there. But we're constantly making judgments, okay? Judgment is not bad, it's a good thing. But the question is, here in Romans, who am I to be making judgments for? 
And for Paul, it's very clear. I'm to be making judgments for me. And not for you. And you are to be making judgments for you. And not for me. Now, as you can imagine, this can create some awkwardness, right? you got one person who's sitting there who thinks, man, yeah, we, we can eat meat because it doesn't matter if that's sacrificed to an idol. This is great. And the person sitting next to them is like, we can't eat that meat. That'd be terrible. I mean, I, I would feel awful if we did. And what Paul says is they're both okay. The question is not whether you should eat the meat or only vegetables. The question is, how do you view each other? And that's his emphasis in Romans. How do you then view each other? So this is a path. This is a path about not making judgments about what is right for you. Of letting others have their faith. So if you think it is wrong, then don't do it. Paul's very clear on that. If you think it's wrong, please don't do it. If you think it's wrong to have special days, then don't have a special day. And if you think it's wrong to not have a special day, then do what you think is right. But that's about you. It's not about them. Now, then how could this apply to, for instance, this issue? Well, if we're at a place of questioning, if we're at a place of growing, if we're at a place of learning, then maybe this applies in this way. One, it's not my job to figure this out necessarily for everybody else. Other people have to think it through too. And so you have to make your own judgments. But... Even while we are all doing that, there's another level here. Because it's clear in these passages, for instance, this is, that if I am a person, let's go back to eating meat, who thinks eating meat is okay, and you're a person who thinks that eating meat is wrong, then I shouldn't try to make you eat the meat. Like I shouldn't be like, hey, look, I know you think it's wrong, but it's really okay. Well, I know that this kind of offends you, but it's really, I don't, I know, you're just not where I am. You haven't gotten to the place. Okay, but I understand. You think it's, no, you need to do this too so you can grow. No, that's not my job. And so, if you think eating me is wrong, then don't do it. And if I think eating me is okay, it's okay for me to do it. And we love each other. One way to think about LGBTQ issues is this. If you think it is wrong, then don't do it. But if someone else has reached a different conclusion through their study, their faith, they're working things out with God, that is up to them. My job isn't necessarily to make judgment upon them, but rather to be in mutual loving relationship with them that is often going to find itself saying, hmm, that's not really how I would do things. But I'm not you. Now, this may seem weird because I want to be honest. It should sound weird when I bring this up about, for instance, homosexuality. Because I am not tempted 
to have sex with a man. I'm just being honest here. I am not. If that's like a temptation, we weren't talking about it that way. So, I'm not going to. But, if someone else is at a different place, that is up to them. So, You hear something like this, and I think someone in here was talking about this with me. No, I'm not. You can hear. I'm actually. You can hear conversations like this. There are LGBTQ, but especially lesbian and gay Christians, who at one time in their life really believed it would be wrong to be in a relationship. It would be wrong for me to have sex, and therefore, according to this passage, it would be wrong because that's how they think and feel. But at a later time, they've come to a different view, a different place. They've made a different decision. They've worked out their faith with God in a new and different way. And now, it is okay for them. It's the same thing as the meat and the vegetables. What's difficult for us is when it's not our thing, we sometimes desperately want to get involved in someone else's thing. And determine for them what is right and what is wrong and what they should or shouldn't do, even though for us, that is nothing. And so, here are a couple of paths we can take. One is the path of fruit, where we say, I'm going to spend my time looking at fruit, both the fruit of my own theology and ideas and thinking and my church's ideas and theology and thinking. I'm going to look at that and I'm going to notice other people's fruit. And then a second path is one about judgment. I'm going to be a person who avoids judging my fellow Christians. Who allows them to work out their salvation and loves them and is in relationship with them as they do that. And it will probably look different than how I would do it. Those are two options. And I think there's some usefulness in them. And if that's where you are, I would encourage you to explore them. But I want to move to two other options that I feel are more close to where I am at as a human being. The first one is about grace. In the 1800s, There was a movement in the United States, often among church people, to abolish slavery. What was most difficult for this movement was this. They were attempting to abolish something that was two things. One, it was an economic juggernaut for the United States. There is no better labor than free labor. Right? I mean, it, it was producing a massive amount of money for the United States. And it's really hard to get people to stop something that is really producing that way. And so they were fighting an economic battle, but they were also fighting another battle. And the other battle they were fighting was this. That it was difficult to use the Bible to fight against it. Because nowhere in the Bible does it say, hey, don't have slaves. Slavery is bad. And so, these people who truly believed that God was 
so on their side and so against slavery had to figure out how do we talk about this with people when they can just point at the Bible and go, well, it says right here, this is what you should do with your slave. So if God didn't want me to have a slave, God would tell me not to have a slave. And this was a massive struggle. Slavery might be right. It might be wrong. It seems like the Bible doesn't exactly condemn it. And so you had a lot of people saying this, until I am certain one way or the other, I'm going to keep doing what we've been doing. I think therein lies often our problem. We often wait till we are 100% convinced that something is okay before we make a move. Which is an interesting way to think about God and God's grace. In other words, we often wait till we are 100% convinced. Slavery, oh, everything, like 80% of me totally believes that slavery is wrong and I, I, I don't even understand what the Bible says. Is, I can believe, But until I guess I'm at 100%, I'm going to let these people continue to suffer. Why would we do that? It's something about us as humans. And so instead, what if we made a move towards grace first? What if we said that, you know what? Even if I am 80% or 70%, why not assume grace rather than assume sin? Why not assume goodness rather than assume evil? Why not assume the best in people instead of the worst? Why not let grace be what leads rather than making sure every single box is checked off that it couldn't possibly be wrong? Oh, I don't know. Have we got ever? There's a chance you will never get all those shoestrings tied and be 100% convinced. But do we believe in God's grace enough that we don't have to be 100% convinced to move towards something that could be very loving and generous and affirming and accepting of other people. If I was a slave and you were 75% on board, I'd want you to do something about it. Not wait till you were 100% convinced. And I believe that the path of grace is a path of powerful acceptance and love for people. And that often what happens is we are not 100% convinced and then we step out into the path of grace anyway and stepping out in the path of grace is what actually convinces us. And I think that is probably where I have been or had been for several years in that spot if you had talked to me two and a half years ago, three years ago about this, I think that's where I was. I was at that place of, hey, I think we should be gracious. Even as we're figuring things out. But that's not where I'm at today. I've moved to uh, another place. And I kind of want to wrap up this series by telling you about that place. I'm going to read to you. This is John Henry Hopkins. He was a theologian in the 1800s. And this is talking about slavery. If 
it were a matter to be determined by personal sympathies, tastes, or feelings, I should be as ready as any man to condemn the institution of slavery. For all prejudice of education, habit, and social position stand entirely opposed to it. But, as a Christian, I am compelled to submit my weak and erring intellect to the authority of the Almighty, for then only can I be safe in my conclusions. Everything in him was convinced that slavery was wrong, but because he couldn't exactly come up with the perfect Bible verse about it, he couldn't do it. Notice what he says at the end. For then only can I be safe in my conclusions. I think that ultimately for me, where I am at comes down to two words. They are safety and fear. About 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I were a part of a church plant. My wife had really started it. And we were having a we were trying to get other churches involved. We were planting a church and we were trying to get other churches involved. We wanted them to come to this event we were having. We were giving away, you know, we had free barbecue and we're asking leaders from all these churches to show up and at least hear our spiel. You know, we're trying to love these extremely, uh, a lot of extremely poor, uh, marginalized people and we need help doing this. Would you come listen to us? And so we sent uh, stuff to many churches, but, there was numerous ones where I didn't know somebody there. I didn't know a person who was a minister or a leader there. And so I took a bunch of these around in envelopes and hand delivered them because I wanted to make sure that didn't just get thrown in the trash with a lot of other junk mail. And so I went to all these churches where I didn't know anybody and often was warmly greeted and, oh, I know exactly who that needs to go to. This is our missions person or this is our whoever and this is who it needs to go to. But I will be honest, I had a couple of churches that my reception was not very nice. In fact, I ventured into one church. And I simply went up to, and it happened to be a lady at the front desk, and said, hey, is there a preacher here or an elder or anybody I could talk to who uh, might be interested in coming to this? And she said, can I see that? And I said, sure. And she looked at it and she goes, uh, they're not going to be interested. And I said, oh, well... Okay, well, and they may not, but I'd really like the chance to talk to them about it and let them decide that. And I was trying to be nice. And she said, well, they wouldn't be interested. I said, Again, I would really love the chance. And I could hear there was someone in the office right behind her. I was trying to talk loud enough that this person would come out. And then they did. And I regretted that I talked loud enough for them to come out. Because the preacher of the church came out. And lit into me about the evils of the church that was our supporting church. And then he figured out who we were because he had received another letter before from my wife. And he did not like that at all. And he began telling me about how I was going to go to hell for what we were doing. And did it. I mean, he just, I mean, for a couple minutes. And I was like 24, 25 years old. And you're at that space where you're just kind of, I don't know, you're just different. I'm different than I So I just stood there and let him go on. 
And he just yelled it and griped and this is evil and he just all this. And he got to the end and I said, So are you coming or not? <laughs> he was he made a he made a show of throwing it in the trash in front of me. I was like, well, now I know, you know. So I so I left. Now, here's the thing. Okay? Um he would believe that because Sunday night Grant stood here and played a guitar, we're all going to hell. He would believe that. Okay, and that's just right. I'm not demeaning him for that. That is definitely what, trust me, that's just the tip top of what he believes. He is living in fear of doing the wrong thing, and that will lead to some bigger wrong thing and that will lead to him and others burning in hell forever that is his fear and I understand that fear but that fear comes from a particular place it comes from what we believe about God now we all say and if you go to any church we all believe in the same God but in many ways we don't Because what we believe God is like drastically determines what we do as church people. In America, church, over the last 150 years, 100 so years maybe, has been a strange collision of four things. We are a product of New England Puritanism. You all know the Puritans, the pilgrims with the hat? The scarlet letter. We're a product of that. The idea of sinners in the hands of an angry God. That you better do everything just right if you want to have a chance. Well, that's a part of our DNA. And then, added to that, was then everybody began pushing west. And going out on the frontier. And these people would go out on the frontier and there's no one there. There's no society. So you're making up your own rules. And then these people would come in and you need to have a revival to get these people in order. And so to revive them, you would preach about hell. And now if you keep drinking that whiskey and playing those cards, you're going to hell. And you had to do that. And so you wedded this idea of there's this moral righteousness that is required with A God who will send you to hell if you don't do it. And you had these two things combined. And then, to those two things, you added biblical literalism. The idea that every word in the Bible, you have to do it exactly like it says. And it you you just grab those words, and if it says do it, you do it. Even though we don't do that with a lot, but there's that idea. And so I read the Bible because I'm scared. I'm scared God's going to send me to hell and I've got to do this Bible just right if I'm going to prevent that from happening. But notice, I am doing this. Because this all also is a part of American individualism. In other words, it's up to you. And it's up to you. And it's up to you. you got to figure it out for yourself. Don't listen to what I say. I might send you to hell. You better sit down with your Bible And talk with your God and figure out whether you're going to hell or not. Now, this leads to a very particular way of thinking about God. That God is out to get us. That God draws a lot of lines and expects people to walk right in between them. 
that God expects you to understand this ancient book perfectly. And if you don't, you might be dead. And that everybody has to be out for themselves. I think that is the God I used to worship. It is no longer. I am not scared. I am not scared of God one tiny bit. God is not going to get us. God is not out to get us. God does not want us to be scared. Grace and love and freedom are what God offers. You see, for me, the answer to all of these questions came down to one thing. Am I willing to say yes to grace? Now, by grace, I don't simply mean like that God will forgive me. I believe that. But it's bigger than that. That grace isn't the thing we get just because we did something bad and now we need it. Grace is the thing we had all along. It is what God does. When John says God is love, John means it. This is what God is. And love doesn't make you fear things. Because fear has to do with punishment. Love invites you in and says, I love you the way you are. Are there things in you that need to change that would help bring you more joy or make life better for you and make life better for others? Of course. We all have that. But most of us don't change those things because we're scared God's going to get us if we don't. In fact, that usually keeps us from changing. It makes us hide. I am at a place, personally, this is just me, where God's grace is truly all that matters. And so, I can look a gay man in the eye and say, this is how God made you. I love you, brother. And that's enough. So yes, I am affirming. I believe a gay man is made in the image of God. And I believe that God calls him to follow in the way of Christ, which means to love and to forgive and to pray for enemies and to bless those who curse, and to turn the other cheek, and to take up the cross. But I believe that all of that can be done by someone who is gay, or straight, or queer, or intersex, or whatever. Because God is interested in God's grace, and our grace towards each other. So yes, someone asked me recently, I would perform a gay or lesbian wedding. And in the ceremony... I would call each of the people to lay down their lives for each other the same way Jesus calls us to do. And so yes, I am willing to stand before anyone, including God, and proclaim my affirmation of lesbian and gay Christians. Not tolerance, not just love, but an absolute belief that how they are made is, to quote Jeremiah, fearful and wonderful.
So, if I could simply make the world the way I wanted it, or the way I am feeling, then the church would welcome our gay and lesbian family members. Both those who are outside the church and many who are hiding in our midst in our churches. Ultimately, for me, it comes down to one thing. And that is, I refuse to live a life of fear There is a chance, and I want to be honest with you, that someday I will wake up in the great beyond and God will say to me, you sang with that guitar, didn't you? You're going to hell. That could happen. But here's the thing. If that is how God is, we're all dead anyway. None of us have a chance. But if the God I see in Jesus and the God I hear behind these words in Romans of Paul where he's talking about being gracious and loving to each other in spite of significant differences, then my fear evaporates. And over the past several months, as I have talked to gay and lesbian and transgender, and queer, and intersex people. Every time that I've talked to them and extended grace, I have immediately 100% known without a doubt I was doing the right thing. God's grace is what brought me into His kingdom. And that grace belongs to everyone. We haven't done this any of the other nights, but I'd like to close in prayer. God, I have been talking about hard things. For many of us, these are Even some of the words I've said were unfathomable maybe months or years ago. And yet, here we are. And here you are. We are trying to do the right, the loving, the gracious thing in our lives. And I ask that you take away our fear and allow us to be gracious towards others and especially gracious to ourselves. Father, whatever path, our church, this little church, the church, whatever path we go down, we ask that we would always, always believe that the good news, that the grace of Jesus, the love of Christ, is bigger than we have ever possibly imagined. Call us deeper and farther. Call us to more discomfort. Call us to difficulty. Call us to searching. Call us to questioning. Just keep calling us.
And let us, like Isaiah, say, Here am I. Send me. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here in this place who have listened to me the past four weeks. That is an act of graciousness towards me. And I ask that you will open our eyes and our hearts to see if there's a new direction, a new way that we need to go. Be patient with us and be gracious. In the name of Jesus, we pray.